Hello and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. My name is JY Ping, and on today's episode, I want to talk about a very specific subset of fill-in-the-blank logical reasoning questions. Now, on analytics, we label these questions miscellaneous because reading just the question stem, you can't tell what kind of question this is. The question stems just say which one of the following most logically completes the argument, and you look up at the stimulus, and you'll see a big blank that you're supposed to fill in. So just that information alone isn't enough to tell you what you're trying to do here. But if you look at the words that precede the blank, sometimes you can tell what it is that is supposed to go into the blank. So if there's a word like thus or therefore or obviously then, these words all indicate some kind of conclusion is coming up, which means that the statement. That most logically completes the argument that fills in the blank is a conclusion, a conclusion supported by information in the stimulus above. In other words, the premises. So today's episode is a continuation of the previous episode where I covered main point, main conclusion questions. So I do recommend that if you are new to the LSAT, that you listen to that episode first. Now, if you've been studying the test for a while, I think you'll probably be fine listening to this episode just on its own. Compared to the main point, main conclusion questions, this question ramps up the difficulty a lot. So, similar to what we did for、uh, the main point, main conclusion questions, here I've taken all of the questions from the June 2007 prep test that fit this specific type, which is. Miscellaneous fill in the blank, but fill in the blank with a conclusion, and we'll just talk about them. And there are only three questions across the entire prep test that fit the profile. The first question is from section two, question eight, and I'll just read the stimulus first. Proponents of the electric car maintain that when the technical problems associated with its battery design are solved, such cars will be Widely used, and because they are emission-free, will result in an abatement of the environmental degradation caused by auto emissions. All of that is one sentence. Okay, really long sentence, but we're about halfway through the stimulus. Here's the rest of it. But unless we dam more rivers, the electricity to charge these batteries will come from nuclear or coal-fired power plants. Each of these three power sources produces considerable environmental damage. Thus, the electric car blank. So you see, the argument really is trying to build up to some sort of conclusion. Now, last time we learned about identifying main point, main conclusion in an argument where the conclusion was already explicitly given, and there you just had to. Ask yourself which one of these statements is supported by the other statements. Here, it's a far more challenging task. Here, you have to ask yourself, out of the five answer choices, which one can be supported, right, or which one is supported by the statements that you just read above. But before we head into the answers, let's get a clear picture of what the stimulus is saying. The author of the stimulus. Begins by telling us not necessarily what he believes, but rather what some other people believe. 
and these other people he dubs proponents, right? These are proponents of the electric car. Okay, so what did these people believe? Well, they believe that, yes, there are technical problems associated with battery design, but they maintain that when you solve those technical problems, those battery design technical problems, electric cars will be widely used. Okay, got it. That's what proponents of electric cars believe. Once battery design problems are solved, electric cars will be widely used. Is that it? Is that all they believe? Nope, there's more. All of this is just one sentence, but what we're doing is we're taking this dense information, we're unpacking it. You know, it does become more verbose, but hopefully it also becomes more clear. These proponents believe more. Okay, they, they believe that because electric cars are emission-free, the wide adoption of electric cars will result in an abatement of the environmental degradation caused by auto emissions. Which, yeah, you know, that kind of makes sense. Electric cars are emissions-free. Unlike gasoline power cars, there are no emissions. So if everyone started driving electric cars, or maybe not everyone, but just wide adoption, say, I don't know, 70%. Yeah, I mean, wouldn't that result in the abatement of the environmental degradation caused by auto emissions? I would think it would, right? Just like the proponents of the electric cars want me to believe. But the author isn't sold. Do You see, the author says, but. And here, again, is this cookie-cutter way of structuring the stimulus that we saw from the previous episode the main point, main conclusion questions, where the author uses the word but or however to signal a transition from contextual information to the argument that he wants to make. So here, the contextual information is some other people's argument, and it's the proponent's argument, which we just analyzed. All right, but now our author's not sold on it. Our author's like, well, hold on a second, but... Unless we dam more rivers, the electricity to charge these batteries will come from nuclear or coal-fired power plants. So this is an unless statement and uh, without getting sidetracked by an in-depth analysis of how to translate properly unless statements, which are conditional statements, by and large they're conditional statements, suffice it to say here, that the claim our author is making is that, look, you got to think about where the electricity to charge these batteries will come from. And there are just two, broadly speaking, two categories. One is dam or rivers, so you get hydroelectric power. And if you don't dam or rivers, this other broad category is, well, splits into two, nuclear or coal-fired power plants. Right? So really, it's like you get three options. These batteries have to get charged somehow. And either you dam or rivers to charge them, or you use nuclear power plants to charge them, or you use coal-fired power plants to charge them. And each of these three power sources produces considerable environmental damage. So you see, the picture is not as rosy as the proponents of the electric car would have you believe. Right? So I think understanding what the proponent's argument is, understanding what the author is trying to say, you have a pretty good chance of getting the right answer. So I'll, I'll put two answers on the table and you consider which one you like. A says, thus the electric car will have worse environmental consequences than its proponents may believe. And E says, thus the electric car will not produce a net reduction 
in environmental degradation. Okay, so those are really two really attractive answer choices, and they are very similar sounding to each other. Okay, so your your job here,、um, as you will find yourself rather unfortunately to be in this situation quite often on the LSAT. When you find yourself indecisive between two answers, you have to make sure that you understand what's different about the answers. And here I'm calling back to another concept, a cookie cutter concept that we discussed in the previous episode, that of comparative statements. One of them is a comparative statement; the other one isn't. Okay, I'll read A and E again. A says, "Electric car will have worse environmental consequences than its proponents may believe." E says electric car will not produce a net reduction in environmental degradation. Which one is the comparative? A is a comparative. E is not. A is saying you take the electric car, and on the one hand, you look at the environmental consequences that its proponents believe. Okay, so that's one hand. The environmental consequences electric car proponents believe the electric car will have. Versus, on the other hand, what are we looking at? The actual environmental consequences of electric cars, not just what these people believe, right? But the actual hard fact of the matter about electric cars' environmental consequences. Those are the two things you're comparing. That's step one of the comparative process. What are the two things that you're comparing? Step two is well, what are we comparing them on? Which one is worse? You know, you assign some number arbitrarily on how much environment, how much negative environmental consequences electric cars will have in reality. You assign some number to how much negative environmental consequences proponents of electric cars believe that they will have, right? And you just compare which number is bigger, right? Is is it going to be, in other words, as great as the proponents want you to? Think it will be, or will it be worse? And answer choice A is saying it'll actually be worse. That is a number, the negative number of environmental damage is bigger for the reality side. Does that fit for the conclusion? Well, what was the contextual argument again for the proponents? They said that once you solve the battery technical problems, once it's widely adopted, because environmental cars don't emit emissions, that will result. In an abatement of the environmental degradation caused by auto emissions, so you see their belief about the environmental consequences of electric cars is that it's going to be amazing for the environment. How does our author feel about this? What does our author say in response? Well, you see, the author's like, "Well, hold on a second, because you know where the batteries going to come from? Where the juice, the energy for the batteries going to come from? Either dam or rivers, nuclear power plants, coal-fired power plants. Each one of those is terrible for the environment." So the electric car, what, will have worse environmental consequences than what you believe? So A fits really well with the argument; it's very well supported. But what about E? E also seems to be supported. E says the electric car will not produce a net reduction in environmental degradation. Isn't that what the author is claiming? That in net, electric cars will not produce a reduction in environmental damage. In other words, maybe it'll actually make it even worse, or it'll just be. The same, just the same, as before when we had gasoline-powered cars. Well, no, 
The answer is no. That's not what the author is saying. And to see that distinction, it is crucial that you understand what a comparative statement is doing. A comparative statement is comparing one state of affairs to another. The author is simply trying to make the argument that it's not going to be as amazing. As the proponents will have you believe, that doesn't mean that it's actually going to do nothing, or it's in fact it's going to be worse for the environment. Rather, the author just wants to bring our attention to the fact that even though the cars themselves are no longer producing emissions, you know, compared to the gasoline-powered cars, where each little car has its own energy-producing engine in it, transforming gas into motion. And as a byproduct, generating emissions. Yeah, yeah, fine. That's no longer true, right? You're taking all those millions and hundreds of millions of little engines out of off the road. All these cars are just electric now. They just have a battery. The author is just trying to remind us that that doesn't mean the energy is free. It's not as if by magic it comes out of nowhere. You're just taking a decentralized system where hundreds of millions of cars are each producing. Its own power, and you're centralizing it. You're centralizing it to either dams, or nuclear power plants, or coal-fired power plants, each of which have considerable environmental damage. So there is a cost. In fact, a considerable cost. But does that mean this cost is going to make it worse than if we never switched to electric cars to begin with? Well, no. Because that's not what it says. It just says each of these power sources produce considerable environmental damage. Now it could have said something like, "And by the way, once you centralize to these power sources, each one of these power sources produces even more emissions than if you had never centralized to begin with." Well, okay, if it said that, then E would be supported. But that's not what it says. It just says considerable environmental damage. Thus, what? Thus, the picture is not going to be as great as you think. You proponents think it's going to be. I'm not saying that it's not going to be better improved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's you know you're overselling it, right? You're overselling this green revolution. That's nuance. That's nuance that trades on the use of comparative statements, and that's the nuance between answer choice A, which is the right answer choice, and answer choice E, which is the wrong answer choice, unsupported answer choice, but very attractive answer choice. Another way you might want to think about E, which says electric cars would not produce a net reduction in environmental degradation, is you can just think about it this way. The author could very well disagree with that statement. The author could be like, no, 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 that's wrong. Electric cars will produce a net reduction in environmental degradation because it is far better to have a centralized way of generating power because then you can just upgrade, say, that coal-fired power plant, right? And in that one upgrade. You reduce emissions a lot versus having a ton of little engines out there, right? Hundreds of thousands of little engines out there, which is very difficult to manage, right? So, like the author could actually just disagree with a claim in answer choice E, and if that's the case, how can you say that E is the main conclusion of the argument, right? It it can't be. Okay, so、uh, E is by far the most attractive wrong answer choice. Uh, but B, C, and D, I also want to go over well as well because there are, there are useful lessons to draw from each of those answers. B says,、uh, thus the electric car will probably remain less popular than other types of cars. B is not supported because you have to assume way too much information. 
the thing about main conclusions that they follow, or just conclusions in general, they follow from the premises stated. You don't have to assume very much, or hardly anything at all, if your argument is, you know, a perfect argument, a valid argument. And so, answer choice B is giving us a claim that, if true, depends on far more than just what was stated in the stimulus. The electric car will remain less popular than other types of cars, so gasoline cars. I don't know. Does the author speculate on the popularity of the electric car, on whether it will be widely adopted? No, not at all. B is talking about the fact of the matter, whether electric cars will be widely adopted. Will, will it be more popular than gasoline cars? Or will it be less popular than gasoline cars? The author doesn't talk about that. The proponents, in fact, really doesn't even talk about that. The proponents just says that once you get the battery problem solved, electric cars will be widely used, right? Will be widely used. Again, that's not a comparative. It's not saying it'll be more, used more than gasoline cars or less than gasoline cars, just that it will be widely used. Right? And then the author just goes with it. The author said, look, I'll concede to you, sure, even if electric cars are widely used, let's not forget that the power isn't free. It has to come from somewhere. And then you launch into the, you know, the crucial discussion about centralization of power generation versus decentralization of power generation. Right? So DCB misses the point entirely. C, I believe, is a better answer choice than B, even though it's still wrong. C says, thus, the electric car requires that purely technical problems be solved before it can succeed. Now, I think that's true. The proponents freely admit that currently we have technical issues associated with the battery design and that they haven't been solved yet. So I think it's not too far of a stretch to say that purely technical problems uh, have to be solved before it can succeed. You can definitely quibble with his answer choice and just ask yourself, you know, you, I mean, one objection could be like, well, hold on a second. Is it purely technical? They said the electric car battery problem is a technical problem, but maybe it's a technical and something else problem. They never said it was a purely technical problem. Totally fine. That is a, you know, that's a reasonable line of attack for answer choice C. But the main reason why and I've mentioned this before too, the LSAT writers are careful to engineer multiple points of failure, right? But the main reason why C doesn't work is that it, just like, you know, just like answer choice B, it misses the point of the argument. The author isn't trying to argue, here is a necessary condition that you must meet before electric cars can succeed, right? You got to solve these purely technical problems. Like if you don't do that, electric cars never going to succeed. Why would our author want to, you know, argue to that conclusion? The whole point is that our author is responding to the proponent's overly optimistic message about environmentalism post-wide adoption of electric cars. Right? This is a small, tangential side point. And finally, D says, thus the electric car will increase the total level emissions rather than reduce it. D is strictly worse than answer choice E because D is a subset of answer choice E. E, remember, E said the electric car will not produce a net reduction in environmental degradation. So this calls back to another cookie cutter concept that we talked about, that we talked about in the previous episode, and that is uh, the concept between polar opposites, colloquial opposites, versus logical opposites. 
right? E just says we're not producing net reduction. Okay, so not net reduction. What are the remaining possibilities? Either an increase or same, right? No change. So E is staking out those two possible worlds. Either we're in a world where emissions increases or we're in a world where nothing changes. Emissions stays the same. D just picks one of those worlds. It says, no, 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 we have to be in the increase world. So do you see what I mean when I say D is a subset of answer choice E? Right? And if E is wrong, if the superset is wrong, then of course the subset is wrong. Okay, so this type of question, miscellaneous, fill in the blank, but fill in the blank with a main conclusion is much more challenging than uh, the main point main conclusion question where you are supplied with the main point main conclusion. You just have to slap a label on it. Here, you're given five answer choices, four of which are imposters. They're pretending like they derive support from the statements in the stimulus, when in reality, they don't. You have to identify the one true claim that does derive support. That's difficult. That's difficult because it requires a much deeper understanding of the claims made in the stimulus, the contextual argument, other people's claims, what the author is responding to, even the nuance with which the author responds. So you see, while in the previous episode, when we simply talked about the main point, main conclusion, some of them might felt like it was overkill, like we were overanalyzing the stimulus, because strictly speaking, it wasn't necessary to get the right answer choice. Now you start to see all of those skills do become necessary. It's no longer, quote-unquote, over-analysis anymore. You do need to understand all of this stuff to pick out the right answer choice. Okay, so it's, you know, it's never really like an issue if you take a question that's easier and perform over-analysis on it. What are you losing there? Nothing, really. In fact, you're, you're gaining because you're just getting additional practice. It's all the same, right? It's grammar analysis. It's all the stuff that you have to do anyway, right? But, you know, the real danger is under-analysis, if you take a particular question that deserves or requires even a certain level of analysis, but then you don't achieve it, well, you're just leaving experience points on the table, right? This, this question is able to, it has the potential to level you up, but you're just like, ah, whatever. I got the question right. I think I get it. I'll just move on. That I think is the uh, real danger that um, I tend to see. But anyway, um, Let's take a look at the second question of this type in this prep test. This question also has a similar question stem, and the blank is preceded with uh, these words. Therefore, advertisers are likely to something blank, right? So again, the clue for what you're looking for to logically complete the argument resides in the words that precede the blank. The word specifically, the word therefore, is signaling to us that we're using the claims above as premises to support one out of the five answer choices. This question is tough for, I think, a different reason compared to the previous question. You know, the previous question had some grammar analysis, there was a comparative statement you had to analyze, but uh, this one lot more grammar analysis okay the comparative statement here is really there is a comparative statement it's really tough to see what they're what they're comparing and let me just count the lines one two three four five six six full lines of text one sentence okay one sentence 
six lines long. That's a beast. Okay, so again, I'll just read it and you can think about it and then we'll do our grammar, you know, unpacking. So here we go. Advertisers have learned that people are more easily encouraged to develop positive attitudes about things towards which they originally have neutral or even negative attitudes if those things are linked with pictorial help rather than exclusively through prose to things about which they already have positive attitudes. Okay, so the right response is, huh? What did I just, what did you just say? Right, come again? Um, yeah, no, it's, I mean, you, you can't, you have the additional handicap of not being able to see this question in front of you. So you just have this aural signal, which is fast fading versus, you know, if you get to look at the question, the, the visual signal is, is not going anywhere, right? But okay, let me, let me do this again. So really the big overall claim is that advertisers have learned something, right? That's it. Advertisers have learned X, you know, advertisers have learned what, what's X. Now you start unpacking. The X start with that, that people are more easily encouraged to develop something if something than something else. <laughs> so, okay, I guess that's a little bit better, but definitely not good enough. So yeah, people are more easily encouraged to develop positive attitudes. Okay, I think I understand that. You can encourage people to develop positive attitudes towards what? towards food, towards friends, towards family, towards pets, towards, you know, lots of things you can develop. You can encourage people to develop positive attitudes, but we're talking about advertisers. So, you know, they're probably wanting people to develop positive attitudes towards their products, right? So here, the, the next set of words, the next string of words is heavily modified. Develop positive attitudes about things, right? What about things? What kind of things? Quote, towards which they originally have neutral or even negative attitudes. All of those words, they're just modifiers of things. So the advertisers are not concerned about encouraging people to like things that they already like, right? I mean, if you already like them, advertisers are like, okay, great, my job is done. You already like them. You're going to spend money, you're going to buy them. But I'm concerned about the things toward which you originally have neutral or even negative attitudes. Like what? This day and age? Cigarettes. Right, let's say Marlboro. Most people, I think probably safe to say, have neutral or negative attitudes about cigarettes. So that's the kind of thing. Things like cigarettes. That's the kind of thing that advertisers will like people to develop positive attitudes about. They want to encourage people to be more positive towards cigarettes. Right, so okay, how? Well, we need to push on to find out how. And this is where the sentence gets comparative right or comparison -y. again starting near the top people more easily develop positive attitudes if those things like cigarettes are linked with pictorial help skip the next five words to things about which they already have positive attitudes okay so we're trying to link cigarettes with pictures to things about which they already have positive attitudes rather than what now you have to go back and read those five words that we skipped rather than exclusively through prose ah words okay so you see now we get this two side-by-side -side comparisons the whole enterprise is 
to get people to develop positive attitudes to things which they're either neutral or negative about. You can go about it in two ways. Link it to something that they already do feel positive about. I don't know, this, to just use like a prototypical masculine example, like the Marlboro ad, right? With, uh, say, Clint Eastwood with a cigarette and, you know, a gun, right? Like, okay, most males, let's say, feel positive about that already. So the advertising company is going to use a picture that I just painted and link cigarettes to that versus a paragraph with words that basically describe the same thing. You know, hey, you too can be masculine, a man, and swagger into a saloon in the Oklahoma territories and uh, commit mass murder because someone insulted your honor. If only you smoked a Marlboro, you'd be cool like that too. Okay, so right, so those two are the are the options, either with a picture linking it to some positive thing that you already feel positive about, or with words to some po- to the very same positive thing that you feel positive about. Which strategy works better? Well, advertisers have learned that the pictorial strategy works better. That's this sentence, this behemoth of a sentence, unpacked, grammatically unpacked, comparatively analyzed. That's what we know. That's what we're using as premise. Okay, so now I know this. This is what advertisers have figured out. The pictorial chain, the pictorial link is stronger, works better than the prose link. So therefore, advertisers are likely to do what? Right? They have this knowledge. What are they going to do? Are they going to use little, if any, written prose in their advertisements? Well, I don't know. Maybe they'll use prose for some other reason, right? They won't use prose to do this linking right to do this emotional attitude linking thing which you know we know that the picture functions better as the chain but that doesn't mean they will use little of any written prose so that's gone a is trying to get you just in case you forgot that prose can serve other purposes in an advertisement purposes other than doing this positive emotional linking right which we do know that the picture does better okay but hey there could be other function for prose Right, a is kind of counting on that you, you would just not, you would not remember that or you would, you would assume that's not the case. B says, therefore, advertisers are likely to try to encourage people to develop positive attitudes about products that can be better represented pictorially than in prose. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, right? That sounds kind of like stuff we read. This is that uh, word salad answer choice, cookie cutter, wrong answer choice that I mentioned again in the previous episode on main point and conclusion. Here, you got to look at the noun that's being modified. I'll read answer choice B again. Try to encourage people to develop positive attitudes about products. Products. Modified. Products that can be better represented pictorially than in prose. So you're talking about the thing itself, the cigarette, or whatever it is the advertiser is trying to sell us. They're saying that product. How do you represent that product? Do you give us an image of a cigarette? Or do you use words to describe what a cigarette is? Right? Or, you know, whatever the product is, do you use a picture of the product or do you write words? Right? Some products are better represented with images. Some products are better represented with words. And answer choice B is saying the advertisers are going to put their efforts into selling the kind of product that they can use a picture to represent. Well, no, you see how that's, that's missing the point. Advertisers will try to sell us any kind of product, even if it's a product that can be, better be represented with words. Right? It's that, let's say it's a product that can better be represented with words. 
I'm actually having a hard time thinking about what kind of product that would be that lends itself to better representation with words rather than just an image of it. But anyway, let's suppose that product exists, right? It's a product that the advertisers want to sell us. Uh, it can better be represented with words. And, and let's say that we do feel neutral or negative about that product. Then, according to the stimulus in question 10, what's the advertiser going to do? The advertiser will then use pictures to link that product to something else which we already have positive attitudes about, right? That's the thing. It's the linking. It's this emotional, positive emotional linking that advertisers have learned. Pictures do better than words. Not the mere representation of the product. You know, do you take a snapshot of the product or do you write a blurb about the product? That's not what's going on. But you see, B is very tricky, right? It's, it's this word salad. You know, there's something going on with picture representation versus word representation, right? But again, it's not about how you represent the product, but rather how you link the product to something you already feel good about. C says, therefore, advertisers are likely to place their advertisements on television rather than magazines. Oh yeah, that makes sense, right? Because television obviously is pictures and magazines are words. Well, wait, hold on. No. Who says television is all pictures? Sure, television is mostly pictures, but you certainly can run words on a television as, as well. And, and who said magazines are just words? Yeah, there are words on magazines, but there are certainly also a ton of pictures in magazines. So do you see, C is trying to trip you up if you don't stop and, you know, I guess if you're real fast about this, right, you, you just might be like, oh yeah, television, picture, magazine, words, done, right? Okay, if television were exclusively pictures and magazines were exclusively words, in that world, C might actually be the right answer choice. Okay, but yeah, we, I mean, everyone knows that's not the world we live in. You know, that's that's that kind of um, the LSAT in the beginning of every logical reasoning section talk about these common sense assumptions that, of course, have to get made. Otherwise, just you, you can't communicate, right? That will be one of this will be one of those common sense assumptions. You know, so having made that common sense assumption. It just, it doesn't follow that they would place their advertisements on television rather than magazine. Why not? You can do this pictorial linking of a positive emotion to a neutral or negative product in a magazine as well. Just print a picture ad in a magazine. So we're down to D and E, and D says, advertisers are therefore likely to highlight the desirable features of the advertised product by contrasting them pictorially with undesirable features of a competing product. Okay, I think this one you can probably just get rid of because it said something about a competing product. Like, oh, you should smoke Marlboros versus camels because, what, do you want to be a camel? You want those, like, big camel eyelashes? Well, actually, who wouldn't want those big camel eyelashes? That's a bad example. But you get my point. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Like, we're not talking about denigrating competitors' products. As a way, and in contrast, to show the superiority of your product. So that just leaves us with answer choice E, which says, therefore, advertisers are likely to create advertisements containing pictures of things most members of the tar target audience like. Yeah. And you know why they're going to do that? Because it taps in to the already positive attitudes. And because it's a picture, it links more strongly to those positive attitudes, encourages people more to then change their attitude about the product advertised from originally neutral or even negative to positive. So E is a very well supported conclusion to draw from uh, the statements presented in the stimulus. Now, is it perfect? Is it airtight? 
Does that mean this argument cannot be weakened in any way? Absolutely not. But that's besides the point. The question stem says most logically completes the argument. It doesn't say something. I mean, you can change the question stem to say validly completes the argument. Then the standard has to be much higher. Okay, you are in fact looking for a claim that must be true if the claims above are true. Here we're just looking for a claim that it's you know likely to be true if the claims above are true. A weaker standard. And here I just want to point out the difference between answer choice E and answer choice B. Remember what I said about answer choice B is that they're talking about pictures of the product versus words about the product. And that's, you know, that was one of the reasons why B wasn't right. Notice that E doesn't do that. E says create advertisements containing pictures of what? Not of the product, of the things most members of target, audi target audience like. That is to say, the thing, like, I guess in my original cigarette, I don't know why I'm talking. I feel like I'm, I'm doing an advertise. Cigarettes are terrible. Please don't smoke cigarettes. All right. I suppose that wasn't necessary. But um, in my original example, they're talking about containing pictures of, right, what? That Clint Eastwood character with a cigarette, right? That's the thing that the target audience, you know, Marlboro's target audience would already be drawn to that hyper masculine you know, violent character, right? I, I don't know. I mean, who the hell knows what Marlboro was thinking? But um, do notice that contrast, though, between E and B. And the third and final question that fits this criteria of a miscellaneous fill-in-the-blank question that's asking for a main point main conclusion is from section 3, question 16, uh, this one is really difficult. The the I mean the difficulty really just skyrockets with this, and it's for well two major reasons. One is that this is a very complex argument. You know we see a complex argument has like a sub conclusion, which then gets used as a major premise to support the main conclusion. Yeah, that's a complex argument. This one has two of those, so it's got two minor premises, each independently supporting their own sub conclusions which then you take both of the sub-conclusions, read them as major premises to then support the main conclusion, which is the blank, right? The thing that's not. So that's, and, and look, you'll, you really will get lost in the argument structure from the first sub-argument moving from the first sub-premise to the sub-conclusion. That move, you're going to be like, wait, what the hell? You can't do that. You're making so many assumptions. And you're going to, you're going to experience the exact same thing for the second sub-argument, where when they move from the sub-premise of argument two to the sub-conclusion of argument two, you're also going to be like, wait, I don't even understand what you're talking about. But it'll really help if you realize that you don't actually have to understand how they move from the minor premises to the sub-conclusions, because this question it's just asking you to take those two sub-conclusions on face value and see what kind of main conclusion they can push out. So a lot of the difficulty in this question, engineered difficulty in this question, are red herrings. The LSAT writers are trying to trip you up in the swamp of the support space between the minor premises and the sub-conclusions. Right? If you just, if you remember Recall that like doing this kind of question is just an act of identifying premises to push out something that likely is true on the basis of those premises. You realize that you're not actually doing argument analysis. You know, so for some of you, this might be easier. 
Uh, for some of you, this might be hard. Actually, actually it kind of depends. If you had a lot of experience, you know, doing logical reasoning, you will certainly have encountered the entire class of questions like weakening, strengthening, all the different kinds of strengthening, right? The assumptions, the flaws, the whatever, like all those different questions that precisely require you to do argument analysis. But this is not one of those questions. This is more like most strongly supported questions, where if the statements here are true in the stimulus, which one of the following follows from those true statements? Okay, so that's why the the support structure in the sub-arguments, yeah, it's kind of fishy. Okay, I'll admit that it really is kind of fishy, but it doesn't matter. As a blind review exercise, it is a good exercise to examine thoroughly the support structure in those sub-arguments. But as the clock is ticking, you want to recognize that for what it is, which is a red herring. They're trying to get you to chase a false trail to get discombobulated at worst. And at best, they're hoping at least you lose some time. Okay, so with uh, that giant caveat, uh, strap yourselves in. Let's let's take a look at this question. Uh, the question then starts, you know, pretty straightforward. Which one following most logically completes the philosopher's argument? So just like all the other question stems. And you look at the stimulus, and yeah, sure enough, it's a philosopher talking, and we've got a, a blank preceded by obviously then a nation something. What? Right, so it's this word obviously that's signaling to us that we're looking for a conclusion, just like in the previous questions we had the words uh, if follows or therefore or um, we can conclude. Sometimes it's just explicit, so we can conclude that. Right, so okay, we're looking for a conclusion. Let's examine the philosopher's statements. She says, nations are not literally persons. They have no thoughts, nations, that is, have no thoughts or feelings, and literally speaking, nations perform no actions. Already you're thinking, what are you talking about? Of course nations perform actions. America has trade disputes. America has treaties. America goes to war sometimes. America gives out humanitarian aid. America does a lot of things. Right? So, see, this is, you're already kind of on the false trail right? when you really think about this stuff. Right? And now the second sentence says, thus they, referring to nations, have no moral rights or responsibilities. Again, I mean, you know, this is probably sends all sorts of red flags up. You're, like, what? You're telling me America has no moral rights or responsibilities? Are you kidding me? So what, Nazi Germany also had no moral rights or responsibilities? Right? They were a nation. If, if this was your reaction, then you are like hook, line, and sinker fallen for the bait. Right? Yeah, don't, don't think about it like that. Just, just analyze this in premise-conclusion style. Like They give you a thus. Sentence two starts with a thus. Thus, they, countries, have no moral rights or responsibilities. And just think just a look. The assumptions they're making is that because nations are, or rather the argument they're making is that because nations are not literally persons, which gets expanded out, right? They don't have thoughts, they don't have feelings, and literally they perform no actions, which is true, by the way. You know, even in wartime, it's specific soldiers and generals and armament and machines that fight and kill and destroy the nation is just concept. When you say nations are a war, it's, you're speaking figuratively. Speaking literally, it's the people who are fighting each other. Okay, but again, that's like kind of following that trail and then realizing, oh yeah, what, they're sa- what they said is right, actually, to, anyway, to begin with. But you don't have to do that. You could just be like, whatever, I'll just accept your premises for what they are. And in fact, I'll even accept your conclusion because my job here is not to poke holes in your mini-argument, in your sub-argument. My job, rather, is just to identify 
what the subconclusions are so that I can then use those subconclusions to support the correct answer choice. So really, I'm actually just going to focus on this point, the subconclusion number one, which is countries have no moral rights or responsibilities. All right, got it. Countries have no moral rights or responsibilities. Now, this next sentence is really long. And as a callback to the previous podcast episode where I talked about main point, main conclusion, I mentioned the words for since because they are conjunction words that join together premises and conclusions. And it's the stuff that follows these words, for since because, that's the premise, which means here, structured in the way that question 16 has it, it's the stuff that that's before, right? That's before these words. That's the conclusion. So this is where we get to argument number two. But no nation can survive unless many of its citizens attribute such rights and responsibilities to it. There are two referential phrases, such rights and responsibilities and it. What's the it? Well, the it is the country, is the nation. No nation can survive unless many of its citizens attribute such rights and responsibilities to the nation. What rights and responsibilities? Well, this is a referential phrase pointing back to argument number one. The conclusion just told us countries like America have no moral rights or responsibilities. Okay, so I accept that. Countries have no moral rights or responsibilities. But now, in this second sub-argument, mini-argument, I'm told that in order for a nation to survive, many of its citizens have to attribute moral rights and responsibilities to the country. Why? You know what? I'm actually just not even going to read the why, because it doesn't matter. I'm not going to read the for, right? Okay, well, I will read it, but I won't pay any attention to it, okay? For nothing else could prompt people to make the sacrifices national citizenship demands. Whatever. This argument makes no sense to me, but I'm not going to waste time thinking about why, because it's just the sub-argument structure anyway. The, con- the sub-conclusion is, is already given to me, for a con- and it's an unless statement. Okay, so th- this is another point of difficulty, by the way. It's an unless statement. This is, you, you gotta, you know, if you don't know how to translate unless statements, it's not your fault. It's just, you know, you haven't been exposed to logic lessons, right? So we have a, you know, in the core curriculum, I just, of course, there's a full lesson on how to do unless statements. But here, this unless statement translated just means for America to survive, what has to happen is that Americans attribute rights and responsibilities to America. That's the conclusion. That's all I need. I don't care how you made the sub-argument in support of this conclusion, whether that's a good argument or not, doesn't matter. Now I have my two sub-conclusions hand in hand, right? I know that countries actually have no moral rights or responsibilities, but I also know that for America to survive, Americans have to act as if America has rights. Has have, they have to attribute rights and responsibilities to America. So these two statements together push out which answer choice? B. Obviously, then, a nation cannot survive unless many of its citizens have some beliefs that are literally false, right? So in other words, obviously, then, for a nation to survive, many of its citizens have to believe things that are actually false. Like what? What are they talking about? Specifically, they're talking about believing that America has rights and responsibilities, right? Which is false because that's the, that's sub-conclusion number one. Countries don't have rights or responsibilities. Ah, but in order for a country to survive, its citizens have to believe that countries have rights and responsibilities, which is a false claim. So therefore, you put the two and two together, you get the conclusion that for a country to survive, 
it must be the case that citizens have some beliefs about it that are false. That's the correct answer. Right? So you see how that correct answer choice, the support that this main conclusion that we're supplying to the argument, does not depend at all on how the sub-conclusions derive their support. Right? It just doesn't matter how the major premises, which were you know, the same thing, major premise, sub-conclusion, same thing. Right? It just doesn't matter how these major premises derive their own support. For this narrow purpose, anyway, it doesn't matter. Now, if you take a broader purpose, let's say uh, you want to analyze the overall strength of the argument, then of course it matters how um, the sub-arguments operate. Right? But here, it, it doesn't. Okay, so attractive but wrong answer choices here. A is really attractive. It's similar to B. A says, obviously then a nation cannot continue to exist unless something other than the false belief that the nation has moral rights motivates the citizens to make sacrifices. Well, wait a second. That's that's precisely in the opposite direction, right? I mean, you you you, you want to say something. Obviously, a nation cannot continue to exist unless not something other than the false belief. It's precisely the false belief, right? It's precisely the false belief that nations have moral rights to motivate a citizens to make sacrifices. That's what we learned from the philosopher's claims. So A takes that and just, you know, slaps a negation on the crucial portion of it. Yeah, that doesn't work. And answer choice E is also really attractive. It says, obviously, then a nation should always be thought of in metaphorical rather than literal terms. Yeah, I mean, I think here, once you see what the sub-conclusions are, the major premises, what they are, I think it's easy to see that it's um, a fairly nuanced and narrow point that doesn't support this very broad claim that E is trying to make, that you should always think of a nation in metaphorical terms. Why? You tell me there's no instance where it actually makes sense to think of a nation in literal terms? I mean, that may be true, but you certainly haven't shown it in the meager premises you've given, right? Because the premises you've given, philosopher, is just too narrow. But E as a trap answer choice shares a lot of features that are psychologically appealing that you, you often tend to see as the answer choice of last resort. You know, on a tough question like this, the also writers know you're kind of in a panic because you, you, you follow those false trails. You thought about those red herrings and you, you lost focus and didn't pay attention to the thing you're supposed to pay attention to. And you're just eliminating your way down, getting more and more nervous as you approach the final answer choice, and you're just putting all of your hopes into answer choice E. Please be right. Please be right. Please be my lifeline. So I don't have to do all that over again, and I can just move on from this horrible experience. So you're you're kind of like already priming yourself to like an answer choice like E, and then E takes advantage by saying something that sounds kind of repetitive. You know, remember the first claim they made is nations are not literally persons, literally speaking. They perform no actions. So, yeah, I guess it kind of makes sense to think about nations figuratively, right, or metaphorically, which is what E is trying to go for. But, you know, they engineer multiple points of failure, and E definitely has multiple points of failure. First of all, it just doesn't make sense that you should always think of it metaphorically rather than literally. What if, you know, maybe it's like sometimes you can think of it metaphorically rather than literally, right? That's one point of failure. It's just too much. Another point of failure is that even if you fix that issue in E, instead of saying should always be thought, should sometimes be thought of in metaphorical rather than 
literal terms, it's still not good enough because it's not the main point of the argument. Sure, it might be a claim. You know, this would be the difference between just a simple, most strongly supported question. If the questions then were just a simple, most strongly supported, then you can you're free to take any or all of the information in the stimulus to support one of the claims. Right then, if that were the stimulus question stem, then E fixed in that way could be a right answer choice because yeah, it will be supported. Sometimes it does make sense to think of it metaphorically rather than literally because they just told you nations aren't literally persons; they literally don't perform actions. So if you need to talk about, you know, the actions that America is performing, well, then probably metaphorically is the right way to go. Okay, but this is not a, just a mo- most strongly supported question, even though it shares some similarities to most strongly supported questions. Namely, we are deriving support. This is a subset. This is not just support from you know any random part of the stimulus. You have to take the stimulus as a whole. And what is it driving to? We're trying to find the main conclusion here, and it's not this. This is not the main conclusion. Okay, so that's the issue with answer choice E. Uh, so now the other two answer choices that are also wrong, less attractive but also wrong, C and D. C says, obviously, then, a nation can never be a target of moral praise or blame. C is not bad if the second mini-argument didn't exist. If all you had was just the first mini-argument that ended with, okay, therefore, nations have no moral rights or responsibilities, then you immediately just say, obviously, then, a nation can never be a target of moral praise or blame. Yeah, that seems to follow, right? If a nation has no moral rights or responsibilities, then how can it be a target of moral praise or blame? But the problem is that there is that whole other second argument present. You can't just ignore it. Okay, so with the second argument present, then, you you know, this is no longer the main conclusion. Or rather, it can't be the main conclusion. It just wouldn't make sense because you would just be ignoring like more than 50% of the stimulus. And lastly, D says, obviously, then a nation is not worth the sacrifices that its citizens make on its behalf. Well, I mean, who knows about that? This is getting evaluative now. The argument didn't talk about whether it's worth it. We can draw the conclusion, like answer choice B does, that a nation's survival depends on many of citizens having some beliefs that are actually false. But from there on out, we don't talk about whether the survival of the nation is worth what. What is it worth? Is it worth the sacrifices that some of its citizens will make, or is it not worth it? We don't know. The argument is silent. I mean... It doesn't talk about, nor nor does it really even give a hint of whether it's worth it. So that's why D is not supported. Okay, that's it for today. We covered three questions of the miscellaneous type, but specifically miscellaneous fill-in-the-blank, where the blank is supposed to be the main conclusion. You can see that uh, questions in this category can get really tough, but just like in the previous episode, I hope if you take away something from this, it's that the kind of analysis you need to do on this question or on these types of questions or just even generally on LR is rather repetitive. So much of it has to do with grammar, just the ability to see through this dense grammar and unpack sentences that are tightly wound up into its simpler forms. Longer, yes, but simpler forms, more clear forms. That is a major hurdle to clear for questions of this type and questions of other types on logical reasoning. Once again, we saw comparative statements and how important it is to understand very clearly what comparative statements are saying. That is, of course, a subset of grammar analysis. 
And finally, with this last question, I think the hardest question, we were introduced to some very high-level trap tactics employed by the LSAC, uh, where they gave us two sub-arguments, two mini-arguments with their own support structures, where the support structures, the, the mini support structures, are rather tenuous and make us uncomfortable and make us want to examine them as a way to distract us from the actual important task, which is just to accept the sub-conclusions and draw a main conclusion by utilizing the two sub-conclusions as major premises. Okay, so uh, that's a wrap. I hope you found that helpful. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send them to podcast at sevenstage.com. I do personally read every email we get, and it's because we don't get too many emails. So uh, I don't know if that's incentive for you to write in, but you'll get extra attention if you do. And finally, if you do find this helpful, the most effective way you can express to me that this is something you want more of is to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I also read all of the reviews. And uh, that is a way for us as a podcast to get ranked higher by the sorting algorithms that help people find relevant podcasts. Thank you very much and see you next time.